The passage for today is still the first part of John 1. Um, but first, let's ask ourselves, how does Christ tell us we should listen to his word? If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word uh, was, he was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the, fle of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Amen. If you're joining us today, we're in a series of introductory messages on John. And these introductory messages have covered, we began with John 20, chapter 20, verse 31, looking at the purposes for which John wrote. And we've been examining, in just these first few verses, a, a number of fundamental and foundational themes for the book of John. But let's not, let's not be confused. This is not merely an exegetical study. Uh, this is not merely, uh, I'm not merely introducing these things so that we, uh, so we'll know the book of John well. But rather, introduction to these themes and, 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 and uh, an awareness of them, I think and I hope, will begin to incite renewal and revival amongst the people of God. That is what I hope. That's my, my desire. And today, uh, we are dealing specifically, well, with the way John begins, unapologetically as it would seem, to uh, introduce us to the reality, the presence, and the eternity of God as Trinity. God as Trinity. Not to be confused with the Matrix. Trinity, this Trinity, God as Trinity. You know, the whole concept of Trinity for us, I don't think appears very vividly in our lives, not as Christians. Uh, think about it. When do we talk about Trinity? We did it when we started the Gloria Patri. We'll do it, the benediction. We, we always we acknowledge and describe the Trinity when we do baptism. We baptize children in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in, in some traditions, there's a genuflection, which, seems, uh, which is often a, a kind of a, a, a mnemonic or way of just talking about Trinity repeatedly and, and, uh, and kind of living in it. 
But I, I, I find that those truths, so that presence of the Trinity, uh, to be uh, uh, unsatisfactory. Like it seems to me that we, we can, we, we're, we're nodding to the Trinity, as it were. We're nodding and acknowledging it, but we aren't really living in it. We aren't, it, it, doesn't, it isn't present for us. And the way this really struck me was I asked myself, what does the doctrine of Trinity, what does it invite me to do? How does it invite me to think, to act, or to live? Does it, in fact, have any real bearing on how I make a decision in life? Or what's important, or whether I should be in worship? And it, it occurred to me, and I think this is a fruit of the Spirit even today, that we have, we have not even begun to, to, to mine uh, what's here. Now, John begins, and I want you to notice, we're gonna get, what my plan today for the message is to, to, to stay on text initially, and then as we move past the text into some of the church's attempts, some of the church's reflections creedily to try to wrestle with how do we talk about Trinity? How do we describe Trinity? How do we talk about these eternal verities and their triune form? And the God is a Trinity as God. What does it mean? And we'll touch on those briefly and some mistakes that we can make. And then I want to push right on into, I think, the usefulness. The usefulness to us, because uh, John has made it unapologetically clear that he is including and editing. He is actually writing because it will achieve something. It will persuade Gina. It will persuade Gray. It will persuade you and me to do something and to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that having Him, we will have life, life in His name. So Trinity, Triune God, this Triune application. I, I can confess, even as a kid, uh, always finding this, uh, when I first introduced to it, it, it almost, uh, there almost seems something kind of arbitrary about it. Like, it, like okay, well, why, why not uh, quintinity? <laughs> why not quadrinity? Why not, uh, uh, why not, and why not other things? In other words, my point is, is I don't know that it is intuitive. Does that, does that make, uh, maybe that's why we tend to stumble on it. It is, Trinity is not intuitive. In other words, you are not through reason alone, as an engineer, Simon, if you were to create an idea of God, it's unlikely that you would come up with the biblical idea of Trinity. It just, there are echoes. There's Trimurti, the Trimurti of the Hindu pantheon, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. But they are, that's polytheism. Well, it depends on what kind of Hindu you are. It could be monotheism with different modes. But we'll, we'll look a little bit at that, because those errors creep into Christianity as well. Trinity. Take a look at the text right there. We'll look at it. Look at its awkwardness. This is, it's, it's interesting. I think this is, uh, Trinity is always a little bit awkward. <laughs> How do you talk about it? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word what? With God and was. Well, or make up your mind. <laughs> All right. But, but, and, and that would be the, the first response to that. Like, well, well, which, which is it? But of course, John and we and the whole church as it existed for thousands of years is struggling, is wrestling to somehow intellectually or verbally or semantically describe something that comes from eternity. <laughs> what are you going to do? Tell me, what will you do? But he describes it. And, and, and the language, this awkwardness of language, I think, is, an, is a little bit of a hint as to the awkwardness of thought that this creates. <laughs> And the paradox that it begins to ruffle in the mind. He was with God and he was God. And, and this, this um, look at the last verse. We'll, we'll look at the last verse and we'll, and we'll see it again. As John uh, believes in Trinity. 
It is God the Son and God the Father. Listen, listen to what he says. No one has ever seen God. Listen how awkward this is. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him. What? Which God is he talking? What God is he talking? Is, is it the Father God? Yes. Well, is it, but Jesus is God. That, that means Jesus is God. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Trinity. I guess I should, I should probably open my notes at some point here and take a look at them. All right. So, Trinity. So, we, so this articulation then um, in, in the scriptures is always this awkward, by the way. The scriptures never use the word Trinity, in fact. But what we, what we observe is it, is it pops up. Pops up in very, very crucial moments. Jesus is being baptized. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is the announcement of him to the world. The Father says, this is my beloved Son. And a dove, the Holy Spirit descends. What do we see there? The Father speaks. The Spirit descends. The Son receives. Trinity. But the word never says, there's never, Matthew never says Trinity. When he, no, it never says that. But remember, we believe things because we believe them by good and necessary deduction from the experience of Scripture. I, I, what I'm saying is the authors of Scripture are wrestling around the awkwardness of these ideas and their inaccessibility to the human mind. <laughs> Does that, they're struggling with their paradoxical expressions. Uh, so uh, Matthew does it. Uh, Paul does it in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 is a masterpiece of unfolding the eternal plans of the Father where his love for crystal began before time and who, and who accomplished all of it. In his blood, the Son brings crystal in. But what seals crystal in the end of Ephesians 1? The Holy Spirit. And we find them active. The Trinity then becomes this active engine of rescue and salvation and healing and joy and rescue of the human race. But he doesn't say Trinity. So uh, I, I, the reason I'm putting it out there is that because of the awkward, so the church then is we kind of leave the scriptures right at that point. Really, I'm going to leave the New Testament right there. You've got Ephesians one, Matthew chapter four, uh, uh, the, this text here. As we kind of move forward, then uh, the, the the next great thinker to really articulate this is Augustine, and Augustine just steps onto the stage and and tries to so many ways to capture what all the implications are, and because of his genius, his brilliance, a world class mind in history, he was able to create, try to imagine categories where God is eternally God, one God with persons. Each one equal in power and glory and majesty. Each one its own person, his own person, but all one God at the same time. And what Augustine moves to is a representation of this awkwardness in the text. And what that awkwardness is, is it's trying to say something that's paradoxical. He is with God and he was God. He was like that in the beginning. Eternally triune. And so as we move forward now uh, uh, from the scriptures into, into Christian history, this has become the foundation and it becomes now and is today a test of orthodoxy. What, does that, what do I mean by that? A test of orthodoxy. All right, uh, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to test somebody to say it. And when I say I'm going to test their orthodoxy, I'm really saying I'm going to test whether they really do know God. That really is seriously. Like, do they have the basic information necessary to have an accurate view of God that would mean they actually know who he is and have a relationship with him? 
And so the church struggled to do this, and, and, and it created the concept of orthodoxy. And I think today, if you reject Trinity, you're rejecting the God of the Bible. You cannot call yourself a Christian and reject Trinity. And so a number of cults then have arisen over the years. And you know what they all want to do? They all want to resolve the awkward language. <laughs> they all want to resolve the awkward tone of, Genesis, of, of John 1, 1 and 2, of John 1, 18, of Ephesians 1 or Matthew 4. They want to settle this. It's weird, isn't it? And so what do they do? They go to one of two different directions off of the, the center paradox of human understanding. And they either go into what's called monism, this is a very popular one today, or polytheism, which simply means, uh, uh, poly means many, many gods. Monism means, the, there's another error over here, that, that God is like a machine and he has three years. He's the three-speed machine. You ever heard of this? He's a three-speed machine, father, son, Holy Spirit. He <laughs> shifts in time. There's this revelation across history. That is a false view. That is a heterodox view. It is a view that is not biblical. Because it, do, it doesn't assign credibility to the awkwardness of the language. You see, and every time we try to get around the awkwardness of biblical language, we're missing good truth. <laughs> Essential truth for salvation. And this happens a lot. Uh, and just as an example, awkward biblical language uh, talks about Adele being totally depraved. And uh, as easy as that is to believe about Peter, it's harder to believe about Adele. You see what I'm point? But points, we, we tend to take language that we're comfortable with and reinvent it or back off from it. And we can't do that biblically. We can't do it about anything, I think. Or we lose the savor of the gospel, which is full of these rich things that maybe we don't want to hear, but they're true. One of them is Trinity. So monism is one error where you simply assign to God different modes of existence across space and time in order to be salvation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are merely different faces. Polytheism is multiple gods. Now this is a direction that I think Mormonism goes in our generation and others have gone. And, it, and, it's, and, and, uh, and polytheism, you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then I think in some traditions, Satan is like the lost brother of those three or something. There's all sorts of weird ways places that go. That is not biblical. It's not biblical at all because that awkward language is meant to describe a, ver a limited set. And it's always a limited set, everywhere present, at all times, all across the scripture, without exception. Bam! Trinity. Father. God the Father. God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit. So what I want to do is, just describing this, I just wanted to remove from you the possibilities of error that exist and test your orthodoxy, invite you into the biblical teaching. It's a nice little seminary lecture so far, isn't it? <laughs> On the Trinity. Three persons, one God. But let me say this. When I say that it is paradoxical, I am talking about Mike's understanding and my understanding and Jordan's understanding and the understanding of the greatest minds who have ever lived. I'm not saying God is a paradox in reality. No. He is who he is in eternity perfectly. There's no confusion in him. We're just limited. We're finite. Earthbound. Our scope, our imagination, our intellect, our rationality is not able to build a construct that can explain eternal things anyway. Any good scientist or any good Good, good physicists will tell you whenever infinity comes in the equation, the equation becomes useless. Because you can't quantify eternity. You can't describe it. You can't account for it. It doesn't work.
And so, um, but leaving this behind, I, I'm kind of excited about it, but what I'm really excited about is I don't think we're ready for it. I don't think you're ready. I really don't. I don't think you're ready. All right. Father, Father, please help me with this part of the message. And I pray to you that I don't want to dishonor the Trinity at all. I hate doing Trinity illustrations because, um, because uh, I just hate it. Uh, because I, I, because uh, we're, we're, it feels like we're, we're, we're reducing God and he won't be reduced. Does that make any sense? He were reducing God and he won't be reduced. But in order to supply this, the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. They are each individual. They're not the, they don't have identity the same. They're in community. Hmm. So what? Now, if I have achieved any measure of orthodoxy in Will's imagination, then I have achieved more than I would have hoped for in a message of, of the gospel. That was a shot at you, by the way. <laughs> All right, so, but I'll tell you what, if I give Ebby new joy or you new boldness and hope, then I, the Holy Spirit has been here. This is what hit me about this. And I, 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 I haven't even opened my notes yet, have I? All right, what doesn't matter? Because I wanted to ask, what about evangelism? What does this tell us about evangelism? What does this tell us about the church? What does this tell us about intimacy? What does it tell us about these things that we struggle with all the time? What is intimacy? What is the church? What is evangelism? Um, let, me, let me begin here uh, with, I, don't, you see, I, I almost don't know where to start. I'll start with the church. Um, I count all the time. I count. I just can't help it. Like I'm constantly counting in my mind how many people come to church. Um, don't take this personally, but when you don't go to church, I take it personally. I know, <laughs> but I know it's not personal a lot of times. I know sometimes you just got things you got to do. You got to go to Germany. You got to go. To, you know, we got plans. We got travels. Got, I know that, but I'm I'm just insecure and immature enough to sit around and just want to suck my thumb at the end of the day and wonder, you know, where everybody was. <laughs> Do you know why that's so wrong? Do you know why this is unassailable? Because the universe is personal. In the beginning was God. He was with God in the beginning. He was God and he made all things. And what is that telling you about the very structure, the very fabric of matter? It originates out of a personal relationship between the Father and the Son. You know what that means? You, you want to walk down this road? This universe is intimately personal. And we are the creation of his community here. And that community began Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity. And I was sitting here praying today. I was, as I was, no, it was, it was in prayer about the message yesterday. And I realized I don't need to count. You know why the church can't be destroyed? Because it begins in the person, the triunity of an eternal God. Why do you think John starts with it? Where does John go? The rights of children. What's his point? What's his point? 
when he goes to rights of children down a few verses down. Why does he go right immediately to family and your rights as children and your invitation into those rights? It's all in the second person plural. It's, a, it's an invitation to a group into the rights of children. He, became, he gave you right to be called children of God. What has happened to Charlotte? Charlotte has been invited in. She's, you know what that means? That means when Charlotte is with Dusty and they're with God, there is the church eternal, triumphant, unbeatable, everlasting. It's gorgeous. <laughs> it, it's gorgeous. You see, that's why, that's why I stopped to pray, because you see, if God reveals this to you, I don't have to worry about this. This makes us all holy. Those sign-up sheets are holy. <laughs> when we come together to do things with the kids, those are holy things we do. Why? Why? Because we're, we are, we are, and we have been ushered in. And the eternal realities have become present day realities in space and time. And, and this is holy. But guys, I keep unpacking this. Do you know why it's so important that men and women be holy with each other? Be holy in our marriages? Now, why? Why? Because we're, we're a part of the church springs from the Trinitarian love of the Father. For the Son. You know we read through today? That, that frightening passage where it says, if you don't forgive your brother, if you don't forgive Mike, if you don't forgive Will, then you don't go to heaven. Does that sound like works righteousness? It does, doesn't it? But what it really is saying is what? Don't you know if you hate your brother, you can't, you're not here. Here, this is a lie. In other words, if we hold grudges, if we hold back from the church, if we hold back from our love for others and our commitment, if we manage our commitments, and we all are managing, I'm so tired of people managing their commitments with God, you know, like, only so much. You know, I gotta be careful. I got, I got time, I got my career, I got my life. I get it. And the church is here to celebrate those things too. But what has happened again and again is we have forgotten, we have not treated if this eternal community from everlasting to everlasting is holy and pure and good, it forms and shapes everything else. And the necessity of this community and its success is guaranteed. Not that we're going to, look, the church may come and go with different forms, different shapes. Of, I don't have to worry about it. You see my point? I don't have to obsess about it. Because it springs out of an eternal triune love that I'm, that, I'm, that I'm in. I'm in. Now, isn't it weird that you can go in there? Guys, think about this. You can go in there. Really? Eternal God, eternal Father, eternal Son, eternal Spirit. Hey, guys. Uh, it's me. Chris, uh, is it okay that I'm here? Yeah. Amen. You start becoming Trinitarian in your passion, and prayer just makes sense. I'm not talking there. I'm talking to the triune God. It's living. The universe is not a quantum desert. No. It is a pulsing arena of triune love. What about evangelism? I picture this idea. Uh, Eric, can you stand up, please? And I, I, Mike, you'll do it too. I was going to pick a woman, but I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. 
Uh, and so, like, oh, come here, come here, come here. Deepak, can you be my pagan, please? Come here. Come on. You're, it works, it works. It works in so many levels. So we're like this. We're, we're like this. We're the Trinity. We've known each other, like, forever. Now, we could be like this, right? All the time. But this is what I picture, like, evangelism really is. This is what the Trinity did. I mean, guys, listen to this. This is what the Trinity actually did. Hey, come on in. Come on in. You have a right to the children. Isn't that beautiful? Thank you. Thank you. By the way, Deepak does not like physical attention, so if you can give as much as possible, you'll do me a favor and make, make me happy. There's a picture of what, what is evangelism then? And what, so this now becomes a model for the church. You see, if we become a clique, for example, if we become self-satisfied, how often do we enjoy church because it's with people we like, or music we like, or, or things we like? And it'd be very easy for us to, even, even as a community this size, we'd become very, very comfortable with one another. And you know what, and, but, and, but we betray the Trinity if we don't become what? Inviting. See, the measure of our intimacy ought not to be our comfort and our clubbishness and our good feelings. What should be the measure of our intimacy? And whether it's really intimate, it's how other people feel when they walk up to our little clique. And we are a clique. We are. Look at us. But if we're going to be like the Trinity that began us, we should be this inviting group. You see, invitation, hospitality. Let me tell you something. Your hospitality is a sister in the Lord. Your hospitality is brothers. Your hospitality, the way you welcome people out for lunch or into your life or just into, into relational intimacy. Guys, every time we move these muscles of invitation and love, what are we doing? We're, the, we're opening up eternity and eternal things for others. Evangelism, if we're not doing evangelism, you don't believe in the Trinity. If you're not an evangelist, you don't believe in the Trinity. And I'm not saying you're out there preaching. I'm talking about just inviting people in to what you have with Christ and with these people around you. I love this definition of evangelism because <laughs> it takes the heat off of many of us who are feeling awkward or inadequate, right? And we're not quite sure what we can say and what we can't say or whether we're really good at answering objections or anything. Um, evangelism and church. Intimacy. This is the one that really gets me. And it kind of supports the evangelism and the church thing too. I've been wrestling with this a lot. Um, if, if most people, if you were to, if I were to tell you that um, we were going to go to a store today that sold intimate things, we all know what we're talking about, right? You'd probably look at me and go, no, we're not. Anyway, uh, you know, it'd be awkward. And, well, why? Because intimacy is described by this generation. Intimacy is understood and approached by this generation and by our city. By our, by our culture as what? Sexual contact. And uh, we, I think we tend to swallow this, this lie whole. We tend to, we tend to uh, drink deep of this. You know, that's what real intimacy looks like. But you know, as I puzzled over that, and as I puzzled over understanding it, um, I was with, I've been with um, couples I've known, gay couples for example, 
and others, doesn't really matter who. And you'll, 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 you'll experience and be around a wonderful intimacy. It's never happened to you. You're like, wow, these people really love each other. Why am I such a jerk that I have to say it's wrong? Has anybody ever thought this besides me? And you're like, man, they really care. And they, here's the deal. What they're touching and tasting at times, and what we have, and what we need to rediscover, is that if the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit could be separate but intimate in eternity with one another, in a fellowship that totally connects them and reveals them, then that means that intimacy is not equal to sexuality. Sexuality is a fruit of some kinds of intimacy that God has ordained. What does this mean? And we can't always enjoy this like we'd like to, but it means, I love this, this has happened in my life, Deepak's became one of my best friends. Now Deepak and I would never, probably never become naturally friends, except we went through a horror, horror, horrifying experiences together and lived together for years. But when I think about the intimacy that we have together and its, and its beauty, is, um, is purity. I want more of that. Can I have more of that? Why not? Now, fun sometimes, you know, men and women can't do that because they get tripped up by their sexual urges. You know, they can't, you know, if you're married, a woman, you can't do it with a single guy or a married guy as much as you want. You can, you'll taste it, though. There'll be times, and don't be deluded by or tricked by into thinking that God wants you to sleep with that person. Or be, no, what you're tasting, and it's very powerful, what you're tasting there, and we can only taste so much sometimes because we can get confused by it, is the kind of intimacy God brings. That's why we do have rules about being alone with each other too much, right? When we think about these things, we know we're sinful, but we've backed off so far, we've lost something sometimes. And especially man to man and women to woman to woman. There is a same-sex intimacy that I think we should be showing the world and revealing to the world because it reveals the Trinity. The Father and the Son are intimate. Any shade of a, of a sexual idea it just seems not only absurd, it seems sounds evil. Because it is evil. Because it has no place there. And my intimacy with my son is the same, right? And if we begin to look for and create and invite and kind of have be available for intimacy together, I think we have an amazing opportunity sitting in front of us. Um, sometimes in churches they call this discipleship. Uh, I personally hate that word. Every time I've tried to figure out a discipleship program, I want to call it something different, but I don't know what else to call it. Life on life is the best description I ever heard by Randy, a friend of mine. Life on life. But and I get this last thing about this last thing. So many of us have been busy Trying to just trying to manage, trying to maybe we're afraid to. We're just afraid to get too close to people. They're going to hurt us, let us down. Amen. They will. Yeah, I will. Ask Deepa. <laughs> but because we're we're building this on Trinity, on a concept of Holy Spirit being present, on this invitation into Christ's love, into Christ's death on the cross, invitation to all the plans of the Father to send the Son to die for sinners. And what are we being invited? The Trinity's beckoning you in, beckoning you in, and beckoning us in together. And, and, and there's a possibility that we're going to taste for at least for a season by the renewing presence of the Holy Spirit love together and intimacy that we have not done before. And that the, that the world will, what, oh, people, people smell it when people are around it. They, 
They want that. Why? Because that's it, the personal universe. Why do you think people are scrambling to, for their marriage rights? Because they live in a personal universe and they won't admit it. They have to have this. And I'll tell you, I can say before the Lord, the sweetest intimacy I have ever had emotionally in this world has been with another man. It was a gift from our father when I was in college. And I've experienced it again and again. And I'm on the hunt. I'm looking for it. Because I know God when I know that. And God is made known. Are you on the alert for that? What is Trinity doing? What is it doing? What is this awkward language as, as it stumbles out of John? What is it doing? It's saying, Jordan, come. <laughs> it's an invitation. Come, First Press. Come, San Francisco. Come into the glories of my eternal love, says the Father. For I sent my Son, says the Father, to die for sinners. And I have sent my Holy Spirit to make this kind of work possible. And people like Will and people like me, it won't be this, just this, it won't be like this. this. This is not a good picture of it. This isn't a good picture of it, is it? This isn't a good picture. You ever remember the verse? I'm going to flip it on its head and we'll be done. Uh, whenever two or three gather together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Amen. That's from the scripture. It's a promise. And it's just, this is also just as true. Wherever two or three together they're in my name, there they are in the middle of me. <laughs> in the middle of me. Isn't that awesome? Let's pray. I thank you, Father, that you, you sent your son die for a sinner like me. And I pray for new access for my people and for me, new joy, new sense of the church, new sense of purpose, new hunger for intimacy. Father, Father, make us your church like this. Inhabit us with holy fire from the Holy Spirit. Let the blood of your Son be the precious thing that we love, adore, and praise and give to each other forgiveness and love. And Father, you ordain whatever comes to pass. We have put our hearts and our lives and our church before you. We ask you to reveal the Son by giving us the Holy Spirit. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Those who believe he gave rights to be called children of God Welcome to the dinner table. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he also took a cup of wine, saying, This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. And dinner's on. And this is the Trinitarian meal. And come and get it. If you're a member of the family, come and get it. He has given you the right as a child of God to come and get it. Do you know this is why we only celebrate communion as a group, not individually? Why? Because it's Trinity. We're only, there's something unique here when we're together like this. We are not separately. I invite you then to come to the table. You know the drill. I've said it over and over again. I'm going to say it again because I, it must be said. If you are a sinner, this is your table. If you are a son or daughter who has walked in ruin this week, 
and you're turning to your father now, asking for forgiveness, this is your table. This is the table of those who come by faith and enter into that Trinitarian beauty. The father beckons you. The son says, come. The Holy Spirit says, what? Come. And now, as the spirit and the bride, I say, come. Come. Let me warn, if you, uh, if you're a good man, Eric, if you think you're a good person, for example, then I think that you are unworthy of God's love. You don't understand this yet. Only sinners are welcome here at this table. If you're a skeptic and you've been listening to this model of theism that I've just presented and you find it either untenable, incomprehensible, or otherwise, I would, I would invite you to speak to me about it. I would love to talk and think through it more with you and understand it and explain the reason for my conviction. And uh, I'll be available to do that. All right, let's get on it. Let's, let's celebrate. Um, let's stand. By the way, you'll notice the Nicene Creed. Remember how I said creeds over the years wrestled with how to describe the awkward language of the Trinitarian interactions? This uh, creed, it was meant to tackle some of these, you'll notice, and uh, the way that uh, it describes God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Christian, First Presbyterian Church, tell me, what do you believe? I believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all the worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten and not created, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, and was made man, was also crucified for us by the conscious Bible. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory, just living in the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. And when we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, is full by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we will look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.